0: So my paper is called How Can I Say When I Never Knew? The Limits of Moral Knowledge and Great Expectations In this paper I will explore how Great Expectations reconfigures the expected moral content of the Bildungsroman genre Plot in a Bildungsroman hinges on a change in the main character like a line segment marked by start and end points The relative difference between the beginning state of the character and the end creates the subject matter and the moral lesson of the plot. For self-improvement to be recognizable, however, an ideal of moral behavior or self-actualization must precede the formation plot in order for the character's growth trajectory to be morally legible. The character's progress consists in the extent to which the formed character matches an often implicit moral ideal or state of original unity. In other words, the moral structure of a building's roman demands a temporally split subject, which assumes both an original or ideal unity before the plot begins and a need for reunification through the plot's temporal processes. Childhood as an idealized unity of the self's internal and social identities often represents the lost object of formation, and the child becomes, as Jess Rosenthal has suggested, the law-giving self in the past. Great Expectations' autobiographical narration explores the possibility of the formed subject, Pip the narrator, both viewing childlikeness as a moral ideal and critiquing his child self for his past failings. So Pip's narration means that the final state of the Bildungsroman, the formed character, exists from the first word of the novel. His narration, its inflection on his own past, is itself the result of his formation. His narration is the result of his formation. In a traditional Bildungsroman, the goal of Pip's moral development, his formed self, would be found in the culmination of the plot. In Great Expectations, however, the great question of the plot, whether Pip marries Estella, famously remains ambiguous, a problem which differentiates the novel from the traditional Bildungsroman. Especially because Pip is a first-person narrator, the omission appears as a choice to conceal what the narrator implicitly knows, which is his own outcome. For any plot, but especially for a Bildungsroman, Peter Brooks writes, that the end crucially acts as that moment which illuminates and casts retrospective meaning on the middle, and indeed defines the beginning as a certain desire tending toward the end. By withholding an ending in a plot which so clearly follows the Christian pattern of identity, alienation, and reconciliation, which Vittorio Hosel identifies, Dickens prompts the reader to look for reconciliation the plot's final stage, not in the events of the story, but in the form of the novel. To look for the endpoint of Pip's moral formation entails turning toward the narration as an artifact of the narrator, the fully formed Pip. As a result, characterizing Pip as a narrator becomes describing Pip as a moral actor whose fear of action is the novel. As a fictional self creator, Pip's moral action consists in revision, the creation of a moral framework by building a self reflective narrative of his own past. The narrator's voice creates the moral structure of the novel, but in evaluating his past self, Pip's narration acts as a form which critiques its own content, Pip's plot. This conflict between form and content reflects a larger temporal paradox inherent in the Bildungsroman genre. In order to intentionally change the self, the main character must be simultaneously the object of formation and already the formed subject. Pip's narration acts paradoxically as both a recuperation and the creation of the moral knowledge and accompanying freedom that he believes he has lost. As a meta-commentary on his past self's actions, his narration raises the problem of the limits of younger Pip's freedom to act according to the narrator's moral framework. As a child, Pip does not yet possess the moral knowledge of the mature narrator that hovers over him and recounts his story. Produced by his criticism of himself and his praise of his brother-in-law Joe, Pip's mature values emerge in contrast to the qualities that he decries in his past self. I'll now turn to Pip's characterization of Joe to illustrate how the narration elucidates the narrator's values. So Vittoria Hosel points out that for Pip the narrator, Joe is the morally most perfect being of the novel. And as such, he does not change. Limited foreknowledge defines Joe, who seeks to do good, but remains in the present, avoiding a self-determined vision of the future. It's like when he warns Pip of his aunt's rages, but then he never plans to get Pip out of the abusive situation. Um, So Joe is contented with sufficiency, whereas both Pip and Miss Havisham create futures based on the actualization of their own desires. Visiting Pip in London feels like an overstep to Joe, who insists on returning to the forge, as if he rightly fits only in the unchanging tableau of Pip's childhood, stating, I'm wrong in these clothes. I'm wrong out of the forge, the kitchen, or off the marshes. Because of his simplicity, Joe does not need to be humbled to come to accurate moral knowledge of his own essential ignorance, like Pip or Miss Havisham. Near the end of his narrative, Pip remarks, there was no change whatever in Joe. Exactly what he had been in my eyes then, he was in my eyes still, just as simply faithful, just as simply right. Outside of narrator Pip's direct praise, however, the plot gives glimpses of Joe that problematize his his fitness as an ideal. Joe does not move in time, and so his goodness faces a problem of freedom because it is based in ignorance or even dullness. Pip finds charm in Joe's simplicity, but his narration shows Joe as comically undereducated and easily confused as when he addresses his entire dialogue with Miss Havisham to Pip instead of to Miss Havisham. Pip's narrative presents Joe's limitations, which allow him to be a believable moral exemplar as accidents of circumstance, when really they are the only possible conditions of his existence. Joe's moral status depends on the impossible ability to begin and remain a morally intact child for an entire life, a condition almost impossible to recreate, in normal temporality. Joe, unlike Miss Havisham and Pip's past self, never misuses his freedom because he represents an extra-temporal morality, unchanging and detached from ambition, but also dubiously possible as a realistic exemplar. By contrast, both past Pip and Miss Havisham start from a realistic flawed position of self-investment and misuse their freedom in trying to shape their futures according to their own plans. Mere aspiration looking into the future does not make Pip and Miss Havisham guilty in the narrator's calculus. Rather, the narrator critiques them for their lack of moral knowledge, so they don't hold this moral ideal of childlikeness and humility in their minds. And this lack of moral knowledge renders them vulnerable to self-interested motivations in imagining their futures. Pip as a narrator critiques them both on an optative basis to use Arthur Miller's term. They are guilty because they should have arrived at knowledge of a higher good than self-interest. Miss Havisham creates a life based on tragedy and motivated by a self-protective desire for revenge which then forms the basis for Pip's erroneous plot. She abandons her own future because of its failed beginning and instead wants to remake herself in Estella, but this time as impervious to love and therefore to pain. She ignorantly believes both that she can raise Estella to reject love and that Estella will still love her as a mother. Miss Havisham moves forward wrongly, because her moral vision, a future of justice visited on men through Estella, centers herself. Like Miss Havisham, Pip determines his own future narrative to reflect his own desires. He believes Estella to be destined for him by Miss Havisham without a particle of evidence, as Jaggers points out to him. After Estella visits him in London, the narrator recounts his past reading of the encounter with regret. Pip remembers, then a burst of gratitude came upon me, that she should be destined for me, once the blacksmith's boy. Ah, me, I thought those were high and great emotions. But I never thought there was anything low and small in my keeping away from Joe, because I knew she would be contemptuous of him. Pip's vision of his future, warped by desire, proves an unstable moral basis because he's blind to what the narrator considers a higher moral knowledge, his obligation to remain close to Joe, the moral anchor of the novel. Pip forecasts his future and thinks those were high and great emotions, but the narrator judges the past against the standard of Joe's constancy. From the narrator Pip's perspective, younger Pip unwittingly blinds himself to his obligation of gratitude and overestimates his influence on his own future. Because he does not have a true knowledge of an accurate moral framework, Pip ends up being convinced by his misreading of his own plot. Pip and Miss Havisham's ignorance renders them vulnerable to ambush by the actual plot. Late in the novel, Miss Havisham meets Pip for the last time, realizing her own blindness only after witnessing its result in Estella's loveless marriage. When Pip forgives her, he acknowledges their similar ignorance. My life has been a blind and thankless one, and I want forgiveness and direction, far too much to be bitter with you. Miss Havisham's repeated question and exclamation, what have I done, what have I done, emphasizes both her incomprehension and her recognition of guilt. Miss Havisham's moral knowledge comes too late, But Pip does not forgive her on that basis. He reflects on her conduct. I knew not how to answer or how to comfort her. That she had done a grievous thing, I knew full well. But that she had secluded herself from a thousand natural and healing influences, I knew equally well. And could I look on her without compassion, seeing her punishment in the ruin she was, in her profound unfitness for this earth, on which she was placed, in the vanity of sorrow, which had become a master mania, like the vanity of penitence, the vanity of remorse, the vanity of unworthiness, and other monstrous vanities that have been curses in this world. Pipway's knowledge of Miss Havisham's wounds against knowledge of her agency in ruining Estella, and does not come to a clear verdict. He does not see absolution in the various states of gained or regained moral knowledge, sorrow, penitence, unworthiness. He reduces all to vanity, a radical position that seeks absolutely no justification, but also leaves no response to wrongdoing, except to acknowledge that it should never have occurred. When Miss Havisham attempts to explain herself, saying... If you knew all my story, you would have some compassion. Pip responds, I believe I do know your story. It has inspired me with great commiseration. Pip replaces the requested compassion with its overtones of pity and mercy with commiseration, the mutual recognition of fellow sinners. Pip holds Miss Havisham and himself to a standard of moral knowledge commensurate with an informed freedom he never possessed until too late, against vanity, perhaps best understood as pride or excessive self-love. Against vanity, he does not acknowledge the mitigating effects of time, circumstance, or human error. Pip judges himself by the same relentless metric when he recognizes his own ignorance for the first time. Pip's crisis of knowledge occurs when he learns that his benefactor is the convict, Magwitch, not Miss Havisham. From his superior vantage point in knowledge and time, the narrator recognizes and retells this moment as the turning point in my life. The revelation of new knowledge drastically rewrites both Pip's perception of his past and the future so that Pip almost suffocates from the weight of time. All the truth of my position came flashing on me, and its disappointments, dangers, disgraces, consequences of all kinds rushed in. I was borne down by them and had to struggle for every breath. All of Pip's history reactivates and must be reinterpreted based on new knowledge. Pip does not absolve himself for his own ignorance once he knows of his own powerlessness, of others' willful concealment of his own situation, as if... In Hosel's words, the sinner must not avail himself of this excuse. Rather, he reacts with the terrifying conviction that despite his circumstances, he remains incontrovertibly guilty of what he should have done. After the fateful meeting with Magwitch, Pip decides, my sense of my own worthless conduct to them was greater than every consideration. I could never, never, never undo what I had done. Pip judges himself by an extratemporal moral framework that stands outside of circumstance, the same form that his narration takes around his past self. He holds himself guilty for his past choices without considering his childhood immaturity or lack of knowledge as relevant at all. By framing his morality in terms of humility, having a realistic sense of your own situation and agency, versus blind pride, being ignorant but considering yourself full of knowledge, Pip faces the problem of ignorance as a moral crisis. Past Pip never has a chance to act correctly because adult Pip's moral knowledge consists of what he could not have known as a child. Nevertheless, Pip retains his evaluative tone. He writes from inherently contradictory moral position as one who both recounts his fundamental ignorance of his own circumstances while holding himself accountable for his error. Pip's narrative problem raises biblical parallels which emphasize the problem of evil. Pip can be read as Adam, fallen from God, or the prodigal son. Both of these characters require penitent returns, movements that circle the moral problem of lost goodness. Pip, as a child, begins with error in mispronouncing his real name, Philip Pirrup, as Pip, a mistake that becomes the condition of his inheritance from Magwitch. Adam, by eating the apple, and Pip, by misnaming himself, both freely choose mistakes that exceed their intentions to become causal of extratemporal master plots. So the coming of Christ, Pip's arrival at moral knowledge. The necessity of error Peter Brooks argues, creates plot. In between a beginning prior to plot and an end beyond plot, the middle, the plotted text, has been in a state of error, wandering and misinterpretation. While Pip's critical stance as a fictional autobiographer seems contradictory, as he creates and critiques his own past, but on the basis of the knowledge he has gained from the very life that Pip as a boy has not yet experienced. Yet, his narration both recounts and creates the need for moral restoration, which generates the novel's Buildings plot. Finally, Pip's narration presents itself as an exercise in freedom, asking the reader to evaluate whether the narrator presents a fitting answer, represents a fitting answer to the loss suffered by the original Pip. Like Pip, however, The reader can only realize his evaluative role too late by moving through the temporal processes of plot. Only by reaching the end of the novel can the reader recognize that the plot leaves Pip's moral development incomplete. The search for Pip's moral maturity returns the reader to the novel's narrative form, to the adult narrator as fully formed moral subject. In this circular form, the novel structurally evokes the double project of recuperation and creation implicit in becoming a moral subject. The criteria for judging Pip as a character at the end of the novel returns us to the book's beginning, to the narrator himself. Such a double temporal perspective enacts the project and the problem of moral formation. In order to intentionally change the self, The main character must be simultaneously the object of formation and already, if only in thought, the formed subject. Instead of seeing formation as a linear process of improvement or deterioration, Dickens depicts moral maturity as the imperative need to be able to imagine the future according to a moral ideal that exists outside of time in a circular narrative of return where the moral framework of the plot exists beyond it as both its narrator and its judge.